Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. Simply stated, opioid addiction and the results of its use in North Carolina is a monster. The numbers are staggering and hard to comprehend. In this state alone, from 1999 to 2017, more than 13,000 North Carolinians died from opioid overdoses. In 2017, five North Carolinians died each day from unintentional opioid overdoses, or 1,953 people. And another 7,453 people experienced overdoses that year. More than 521 million opioid pills were dispensed to North Carolina residents in 2017. Most of this use resulted from the distribution of synthetic opioids like fentanyl. The death rate attributed to opioid overdoses rose from 116 in 2013 to almost 2,000 in 2017. Among African Americans, the rate of increase in these overdose deaths are higher at the national level, even though the actual use of opioid by whites is higher. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported that 5,513 African Americans died from opioid overdoses in 2017, which represented an increase of 26% over the 2016 number. So what's going on? And how has North Carolina responded to this crisis? This and other questions will be discussed with our guests tonight as we attempt to dissect and understand the opioid crisis in North Carolina. Tonight we are joined by attorney Hugh Harris, who is an outreach and policy counsel for the Public Protection Division of the North Carolina Department of Justice, and Dr. Jennifer Carroll, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at Elon University. So first of all, I want to thank each of you for joining with us for this uh, very important uh, discussion. Thank you for having me. Thank right. you. Well, start us off by um, telling us a little bit about what, what you do and how this opioid crisis impacts the work uh, that you are engaged in. So why don't we start with uh, Dr. Carroll. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, as you mentioned, I'm an assistant professor of anthropology. Um, I am a medical anthropologist by training. That's, I guess, how I identify professionally. And that means that I do a lot of research um, organized around questions of how people make health decisions, how people understand what's going on with their bodies, how people experience health, illness, medication. 
And the research that I've been doing over the last several years focused in the United States has been looking at how individuals who engage in opioid use, whether that is um, illicit opioid use, diverted prescription use, or even prescriptions that they get from their physician for managing chronic pain, how those individuals are understanding what's going on with their bodies, understanding the changing policy environment, the changing culture and social understandings around opioids, and making decisions based on that. Um, I was uh, involved in a number of research studies in New, the New England area, and still am, where fentanyl was first detected. It's very hard to know how fentanyl or where fentanyl first appeared in the United States because many people weren't actively looking for it. It's literally something we hadn't thought of. But it was first detected in Rhode Island, and we were able to do some work with individuals who use opioids in that part of the country and try to understand how they were experiencing it, um, the, the shock and surprise that comes when the product that you've been buying and using for a long time suddenly you know, throws you down on your back or gives you really strong reactions that you weren't wanting for or, you know, takes away um, friends that you've had since the fourth grade. Honestly, I had people in interviews who were describing the deaths they'd experienced um, that sound just like interviews from San Francisco in the 80s and 90s. It was really devastating. And so since then, I've worked as a contractor for the Atlanta Carolina's high-intensity drug trafficking area as a subject matter expert on overdose prevention, understanding some of the social drivers um, behind what puts people at greater risk and how to, to solve it. And now that I'm here in North Carolina, I'm very happy to be um, doing research locally, trying to do what I can with the resources I have available to support harm reduction programs um, and advocate for evidence-based responses to the opioid epidemic, because we do know an awful lot about how to stop opioid overdose. And there's an awful lot of things that we know work that we're not doing because we have a lot of feelings about those solutions. Okay. So that's where I land. Attorney right. Harris. All right. So um, at the North Carolina Attorney General's office, obviously, North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein came into office and this opioid epidemic was in full swing. People were dying. They were calling our office and we wanted to get involved. We wanted to do something we, you know, anything that we could do. We helped draft, draft uh, some laws, whether it be the STOP Act or HOPE Act. But more importantly, in, in my job as outreach and policy council, outreach, I get to go out through all the communities here in North Carolina, meet with groups, telling them, teaching them, whether it's prevention, education, whether it's about this opioid epidemic, what's happening here, what the laws are, uh, what we can do to help each other, how we can reduce that stigma. Or uh, another side of it is some of the outreach we also do is consumer protection. We talk about cybersecurity, North Carolina's data breach law. So we kind of fit in through all of that and just trying to reach everyone, whether it's kids too. We're not forgetting the youth, whether it's college age or high school or middle school. Um, we want everyone to be safe, and that's our North Carolina Attorney General's job, keep everyone safe here in North Carolina. Okay. Well, my, my first question is kind of basic, and, uh, and I know a lot of people in our audience uh, uh, will have the same question, and that is, what are opioids? <laughs> Where do they come from? You know, and uh, uh, how is it that we come in contact with them on a uh, on a daily basis? Doctor. Well, I will I will clarify by saying I'm not that kind of doctor. Um, <laughs> but uh, what I know, based on uh, you know the research that I've done and my proximity to people who are that kind of doctor and have graciously educated me, um, opioids is a broad term for a, a subset of substances that either are from um, natural opi opiate sources, like uh, like the opiate and poppy, for example, or synthetics that mimic that kind of molecular structure. Um, opioids are so named because 
they interact with, um, uh, well, many things in the brain, but one of the most uh, areas of most interest is what's called the mu-opioid receptor. So those those names are a little bit circular. But essentially, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, take some words from my colleague at Elon, Matt Gendel. He described it really well. There's a, already a part, a mechanism in your body that that calms things down. So, you know, when I'm late to my class and I'm hustling up the stairs and I'm like, oh, Lord, all the kids are there and I'm missing lecture, da, da, da. and the second I walk into the room, I'm breathing heavy and my heart rate is really fast and I need to settle it back down. So there's already a mechanism in my body that does that. And what um, opioids do when they attach to and activate that receptor in the brain is take those mechanisms and really crank them up. So in a way, it cranks up the part of your brain that cranks your body down, if that makes sense. So all of the, um, it, it down-regulates your, um, uh, so to some degree, your immune system. It down-regulates your heart rate. It down-regulates your respiratory rate. Um, and that's eventually what leads us to overdose. Overdose happens when the part of your brain that is trying to calm your body down turns on so much that it turns off the part that eventually stays awake and then eventually turns off the part that uh, remembers to breathe for you when you're not awake. So traditionally, before some of these very fast-acting opioids um, came into the illicit drug market, like fentanyl and its analogs, overdose is something that would actually take several minutes to occur, and so there would be a long window in which you could intervene and save someone's life. Um, and uh, we have, as a species, humans have thousands of years of history with, with opioids. It's something that we've interacted with um, and had different um, you know, cultural narratives with and tropes with for, for a very, very long time, and I, I strongly suspect they're going to continue to be a part of our lives for a long time. Mm -hmm. And you know, awesome. oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah. We're also including prescription medications too, oxycodone, yes. uh, Vicodin, morphine, yes. and also illicit uh, heroin. Uh, some of those drugs are also included in opioids. Yes. That's, mm -hmm. you know. So the common painkillers. Common painkillers. Uh, <laughs> that uh, we are prescribed uh, regularly by our doctors and that we crave uh, right. as soon as we have injuries. Uh, uh, or some uh, physical problems and issues or uh, emotional mm -hmm. uh, uh, upheavals uh, in, in our lives. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's easy for people to slip into that because it's commonly prescribed and, and used. How has the use of opioids, since they have a laudable purpose, you know, and yes. that is to help people yes. get through trauma. Uh, how has that become an, an epidemic? Well, at least from our point of view at the Attorney General's office, the prescriptions that they were prescribing people for opioids, you know, some of those names, uh, those medications we named were enormous amounts. You know, we're talking about 40, 50, 60 pills. When I've talked to people in North Carolina, they've called our office, they've told us the stories. They had all this extra medication. Number one, it's too much for them. They were taking, you know, either too much and then becoming addicted to it, right? Or they left it in the medicine cabinet and the worst case scenario happened. Their kid or someone else got a hold of that medication and became addicted to it. And, you know, whether it was the manufacturers of these, these drug companies, right? Like our office is involved in some investigations and lawsuits with, with the other attorney general offices or whether it was the doctors prescribing this. We knew that that was one thing we kind of needed to stop, the amount of these pills that were being prescribed because people were diverting them. You know, they couldn't get those pills anymore, so they were diverting them and going to the street drug, heroin, mm -hmm. 
things like that to feed that that craving, so to speak. So from our point, that was one aspect, and, and that's why we drafted the STOP Act, mm-hmm. try to limit those prescriptions to five days. Oh, go ahead. So, Attorney Harris, so you mentioned, um, you know, you, one might have been prescribed um, oxycodone, for example, uh, and then if they couldn't get a refill of that prescription, then they would fall back to heroin. And, Dr. Carroll, this kind of goes back to your discussion of, of what opioids is and where it comes from, and there's this long history of it. And so um, in, in my research, uh, there was the discussion of morphine and, and the addiction that resulted, you know, uh, as a result of that being prescribed. And then you saw heroin. And you also talked about how culturally we've treated addictions related to opioids um, differently depending on, you know, who was being addicted. Can you talk a little bit about that as, as we kind of think about the history of opioids? Yeah, so um, you make a really excellent point, and in fact, I think it's important to recall a lot of people don't know that heroin was originally, the word heroin was a trademark of the Bayer Corporation, same people who brought you aspirin. It was released in 1898, and it was actually marketed as a treatment for morphine addiction, which it was very effective at doing because heroin is diacetyl morphine. It breaks down in the body into some free-floating acetyl molecules and morphine. So... It was also marketed as a uh, cough suppressant, which it was very good at doing, um, a sleep aid for young children, which it was also very, very good at doing. Um, and, uh, and, and still being used. <laughs> quite possibly. And, and you know, the, the social career of, of that particular medication changed over time the same way that the quote-unquote social career of amphetamines has changed over time, of benzodiazepines. You know, the thing that used to be mother's little helper is now, you know, on the street and it's now the source of evil and, and things like that. Um, and in the, the I, I hate to generalize in this way, but just for, for lack of a better word, in, in Western medicine, um, so in, in Europe, especially in places like uh, Western Europe, France and England, and then in, in the colonies and later um, in the United States, there was a pervasive understanding of addiction, and not just addiction, but alcoholism, especially, um, you know, the, the London gin epidemic and all these things. There was an understanding that this really came from uh, what historian Mariana Valverde has called a palsy of the will. So essentially, you're a weak person. Person, right. If you if you're caught up in this cycle of um, really destructive use or consumption that seems to an outsider to be entirely irrational, it must be because there's something wrong with your deep seated, you know, Protestant individual soul. You should be pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, not drinking another handle of gin or returning to pills or something like that. So even though we now understand an awful lot about how opioids um, alter the brain, have real biological um, effects on the body, that there are huge genetic components to specifically opioid use disorder, that there are massive environmental components, um, we really understand how to predict it much, much better. and, and social uh, factors still matter an enormous amount, but we haven't really divorced our thinking about what addiction is away from that original narrative that at this point is more than 100 years old that just says you are a, a weak person. And so when we try to disabuse ourselves of that idea, our implicit biases fundamentally affect our ability to do so, right? So depending on how a person presents to us, how we read their gender, what color their skin is, things like that, as we're trying to do that, those hard intellectual gymnastics of saying, what do I really think is going on here? Our implicit biases across race and class and gender facilitate or inhibit our ability to be more reasonable with people when addiction arises. 
Antonio Harris, can you talk about uh, maybe from a law enforcement perspective, the the view of those that may have been um, addicted to and using heroin versus the view of people who might be addicted to opiates and, and how when we think about culturally how addiction is viewed, how we've got this difference in terms of even though we're talking about, you know, chemically a very similar substance, there's a difference in terms of perception. Right, right. And we're speaking to, I guess we, we, we should say prescription right some of the pills that people may get addicted to or the street drug right and, and it's viewed that street drug more urban area right black people brown people are using this right using heroin so we need to lock it up that's when i grew up well probably 70s 80s i remember crack cocaine i remember lynn bias and just freaking out like i don't want anything near that because i want to play basketball and but I, i'm bringing that full circle because it created that stigma too i remember the stigma attached to that crackhead crack baby you may even still hear yeah. it um yeah. when i was in the public defender's office you know some of the attorneys had that viewpoint even though people were you know they're addicted we know they had this issue and they looked just like me right brown skinned you know people and we were thinking lock them up that's that's the cure that'll you know put them in jail put them in jail again and there they are they can't control themselves they're to to feed this habit they're committing these crimes and but now the prescription drugs is a little bit different because it's prescribed from the doctor you gotta have a little bit of money right health insurance know a doctor to get these prescriptions and it costs more to get those to feed that habit you know yeah we did some things with the laws now to try to stop that doctor shopping we talked about but if you're someone that doesn't have access to health care or that, that sort of money, you're not going to do that. You're going to turn to the street drug and do that. And that's law enforcement's, was law enforcement's perspective. That's where our office is trying to get out there, whether it's the attorney general himself holding law enforcement roundtables with police chiefs, sheriffs, and everyone, you know, in North Carolina, everyone that will, you know, listen to them and, and come to these different roundtables throughout the state, whether it's district attorneys, um, public defenders, all of them, telling them, look, we can't arrest our way out of this problem. You know, th that's where the opioid epidemic's kind of changing things. Hopefully, you know, my thing is let's push it to all substance abuse, right? Let's not forget the people who are locked up for mm -hmm. cocaine or crack cocaine. Mm -hmm. And we get that. And that's where we're pushing law enforcement, you know, to understand mm -hmm. that. Because when they lock somebody up, they see them get out and they use this drug and they die. There's no coming back from that. They die. Mm -hmm. So they know that it's affecting their community. They need to change things. Right. This is the uh, Legal Legal Review. And uh, we're talking about the opioid crisis in, uh, in North Carolina and uh, probably the opioid crisis in uh, your community and maybe in your, in your home. We're talking with Attorney Hugh Harris of the uh, North Carolina Department of Justice, Dr. Jennifer Carroll, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at uh, Elon uh, University. We're going to take a break right now. I want you to uh, stay with us and we'll be right back. Since 2010, 
the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre-law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self-advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us. Uh, this evening for uh, this really important discussion of the opioid crisis uh, in uh, in North Carolina. We are pleased to have uh, Attorney Hugh Harris, who is with the uh, North Carolina Department of, uh, of Justice, the uh, Public Protection uh, Division, and uh, Professor, Assistant Professor uh, Jennifer Carroll, uh, who is an anthropologist at uh, Elon uh, University. This is a uh, topic of uh, importance for uh, many of us and many of you uh, because we, we're drawing some uh, distinctions between those uh, drugs uh, that uh, we use on a regular basis, uh, and I guess some is on the permissive side in the sense that we have prescriptions, uh, that end, and then the others are on the unpermissive uh, side in terms of the uh, street drugs uh, that, uh, that we are accustomed to. So I'm going to start this segment off by asking uh, the, the question is, what, what is the difference between this modern-day opioid crisis and the crisis that was uh, advertised uh, years ago, back in the 70s and 80s, as a part of the uh, war on drugs, uh, which resulted in uh, this uh, mass incarceration of, uh, of African Americans. And how, how do the crises uh, differ? Uh, and why do they uh, differ? So you want to start? Certainly. Um, I think that's a, a fantastic question. So part of the reason I mean, to cut to the chase is how we understand the, the who is affected and, and why. Um, you know, there's a, a, a really wonderful um, uh, medical doctor and medical anthropologist, so someone who went to school even longer than I did, a woman named Helena Hansen in, in, um, in New York. She works for NYU. She also studies uh, substance use and addiction. Her work is marvelous. And one of the observations that she has made um, that, that I find very, very compelling is that when you have uh, people of color who are engaging in substance use, as I mentioned before, our implicit biases come in and we fall back on this, to be frank, very lazy intellectual narrative of like, oh, they're just weak, they're just bad people, so on and so forth. Um, but when white people are involved in substance use, um, especially in a white supremacist society, uh, which, which we are, I feel like that's a very uncontroversial statement, 
you there is a, a sort of intellectual block between applying that same logic. Um, so she um, and some colleagues did work on Staten Island and, and published a piece about this in Medical Anthropology Quarterly a few years ago. Um, I have it fresh in my mind because I taught it this term. And she made the observation that the 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 major impetus of people who were experiencing or observing the growing opioid epidemic on Staten Island specifically, which is a very white borough of New York City, um, was to place blame elsewhere. Like it can't possibly be these good white people's fault. It must be, you know, insert anyone who's available here: the pharmaceutical companies, the doctors, the the government, you know, whoever whoever it might be. Um, and and along the lines of that, there is. I, I really appreciate the comment that you made earlier about um, that we cannot arrest our way out of this. I am a strong proponent of the idea that uh, there is a an inherent and and very low ceiling on the ability of of criminal justice responses to to manage um, the problems that are or are related to addiction. But there is a uh, a woman who also works for the New York Department of Health named Denise Paoni. She recently gave a presentation at the RX Summit in Atlanta where she showed a slide and it was two two lines on a on a on a line graph and one was the number of media mentions where it says we can't arrest our way out of this and the and it just started low and went shoop and shot up and then the other line which tracked perfectly was the number of white people who had died from opioids right and that to me i was like that's it that's 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 the answer that's the entire introductory class about how these two epidemics differ yeah i mean basically i hear it all the time you guys are doing something because white people are dying white kids are dying rich white people are dying you know but i i remind people at least we are doing something now she mentioned the science is better now we understand it at least we can do something to save lives because it's not just white people dying. Certainly. It's, you know, Native American, Hispanic, black, because we know she mentioned fentanyl. You know, that's something that's that's very powerful that's, you know, causing a lot of these overdoses is being mixed in these other drugs. So it's affecting everybody. But more importantly, if we're starting this conversation, we know the science is there, this addiction science, and we know that we can't arrest our way out of this problem we can apply that across the board, this criminal justice reform. I think that's a good start to put it to use. Let's let's be positive. Yeah, we made a mistake in the past. We know that. Just say no, crack the egg in a frying pan and all that stuff. But now we know that that's not the way it's going to work because it, it's not. It, it didn't then and, it, and it's not now. So um, just by us talking to law enforcement and getting out there, getting this education, teaching people, hey, just because it looks like we're help, we're doing something because one community was affected, but we're all in this together. We're a symbiosis. We're all connected. You know, we, we still have people, African-Americans, everyone that are, that are being affected by this. So let's try to do something to cover everything, every substance abuse issue. Let's look at that for yes. the criminal justice. People who are locked up for smaller amounts. Let's let's change some of this. Mm-hmm. So if it starts that narrative, I think it's a positive. I really do. There are still legacies, though, aren't there? So please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that there is no non-felony amount of crack cocaine possession in North Carolina. Is that correct? I'll defer to the professor. Uh, that's that's correct. Yeah. Uh, so the, 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 the non-felony would be uh, small amounts of uh, marijuana. Or marijuana. Mm-hmm. So we have a fortunately because this is one of those wonderful evidence-based policies. We have a good Samaritan law in uh, yeah. in North Carolina, not the one that protects you when you give CPR and crack someone ribs because you did it effectively. The law that provides limited criminal immunity to people who are calling nine one one or other emergency responders when they reasonably suspect that someone is experiencing an overdose. Um, 
that law in North Carolina extends those protections to non-felony amounts. And so the idea is like, all right, if you got your stash in your pocket and you're like, oh, no, I'm going to be caught, so I can't call 911. Or, you know, fear makes us make bad choices. Um, that doesn't extend to people who are using crack cocaine. And we know that there are, you know, racial disparities among substance use choices just because that's how culture works. Mm. Um, so, so those legacies are still with us. They exist outside of the brains of, you know, the good doctors of the world who have not yet addressed their implicit bias. And, and there isn't a fundamental difference between crack cocaine baking and, soda, uh, I think, what, or baking uh, powder. What we <laughs> end up uh, with opioids. Uh, yeah. And in fact, they, uh, they're all designed to make us feel better Mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons that people slowly sink into uh, the, uh, the addiction because they are feeling uh, better. In fact, some people go out and get involved in RICS just so they mm -hmm. can get prescribed mm -hmm. uh, some, uh, some uh, painkillers from, uh, from the doctors. Thus, the doctors become the pushers uh, rather than the uh, uh, homeboys out on the, uh, on the street corner. And uh, so it's uh, uh, what are the resources to, well, let me, before I ask that, what about the transfer of this addiction to the young, uh, particularly newborns? Uh, is, 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 is that as significant with this opioid crisis as it was with the crack babies that you mentioned uh, earlier uh, that uh, resulted from the uh, uh, use of uh, crack cocaine. Oh, well, I think it's important to clarify that um, the to to use your terminology, the the idea of a crack baby is uh, is a myth. Um, we don't have any scientific evidence that shows long term effects of cocaine exposure in utero. Um, and and part of the reason for that is that one, if you have um, pregnant individuals who are engaged in cocaine consumption during pregnancy, um, quite often there's so many other things going on in their lives that are impossible to tease apart from. Um, the effects of that particular drug, uh, but also because we have we do have some studies that indicate that the amount of stigma that were attached to young children because they received that label was more harmful than anything that could have come from exposure in utero in the first place, um, which is part of the reason why I um, very consistently recoil when I see these anti-drug messages that really, you know, show babies next to tombstones next to bottles of prescription pills. It's, it's all very, very misleading. Um, so I, what you're referring to with opioids is neonatal abstinence syndrome. Um, and the numbers of children being born with neonatal abstinence syndrome is increasing. And I think it's important to recognize two things about that. One is that neonatal abstinence syndrome is not um, as severe as people often describe it to be. So, so first of all, those children are not addicted um, because addiction is a behavioral disorder. They are born with opioid tolerance and experience opioid withdrawal. And even though there are medications that can be used to treat neonatal abstinence disorder, there is um, a growing body of evidence and especially a lot of work being done by the um, Perinatal Association, the National Perinatal Association, showing that um, doing very simple things like rooming the child and their birth parent together um, having skin-to-skin -skin contact and just putting them in a place that's low light and low sound does an enormous amount to reduce the amount of time they're hospitalized and drops the amount of medications that the children need dramatically. Um, and in fact, I know from a, um, a neonate uh, fellow harm reductionist that um, Banner Hospital in, in Arizona is actually doing a particularly good job of this. They have dropped the medication that they've given to young children quite a lot just by adopting these common sense sort of practices. Um, 
although I say common sense, but you know, you, a NICU is not a calm place generally. So it, you know, most hospitals don't always have the capacity. The other thing I would mention is that right now the gold standard treatment for pregnant people who have an opioid use disorder is buprenorphine. And buprenorphine is an, a partial opioid agonist. It is, it is an opioid drug. And so those children are going to be born with neonatal abstinence syndrome as a deliberate result of the treatment of their parents. Um, and the logic behind that is the five extra days that they need to stay in the hospital in a quiet place with kangaroo care, that skin-to-skin contact, possibly a medication drip, but that's only in really extreme cases, far outweighs the risk that that child will be facing if their parent is using different drugs, using in a way that they don't have control over, or just simply using drugs that don't come with an ingredients list. And, you know, this whole discussion, it just highlights the difference based on the color of the person who yes, is ma'am. using drugs. So even <laughs> in terms of identifying how we characterize children who might um, be addicted because their mother was taking. So we say, you know, crack baby, for example, and then neonatal abstinence uh, syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then you talk about the gold standard, and the gold standard is mm-hmm. that we treat, you know, mm-hmm. the, the infant um, in a way that will uh, improve its its life as opposed to mm-hmm. removing it from its mother. I mean, so just hearing you, and I, and I really mm-hmm. appreciate you being able to share um, uh all of this expertise, but I, I couldn't help but think about the difference uh-huh. that uh, the the conversation that we have when you have mm-hmm. uh, pictures of white women mm-hmm. versus pictures of black women. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree, and um, I think it's important because also the the babies, the infants with this, but also the parents. <laughs> you know, sometimes they're in different situations, right? They're still addicted. They may be on the streets. Sometimes they may not have had those services, you know, that they needed, and that's where we're talking mm-hmm. about color of your skin. Do you have the services to go right. to the doctor when you're pregnant, right. you know, or, or not? Um, all of that plays a role, and that's right. Just taking a backup view sort of based mm-hmm. on what Dr. Carroll stated, and you're like, wow, I see it again. But it's good we're talking about it, right? <laughs> we're not hiding behind this. We're like, here's what it is. We need to change this gap. Yeah. And the legacies of capitalism and racism are so wrapped up in this, too. I mean, part of the reason why we do have this medical terminology around um, opioid use disorder and neonatal abstinence syndrome is because opioids have been in the medical problem space for much, much longer uh, because there was a view towards monetizing it. The um, the holy grail for a very, very long time in laboratory research was the non-addictive opioid, which you know, again, I'm not that kind of doctor, but I'm, I'm a betting woman. I'm going to say that's not a thing, you know, that, that exists. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there was there was a, we have a lot more um, treatment options. We've discovered a lot more things about how to manage it than we have about cocaine because cocaine, A, was not as monetizable because, B, it was associated with African-Americans. It has been for a very, very long time, right? So opioid research was about, was has always been about helping white people relieve their pain. And cocaine management and cocaine control has always been about controlling black bodies. And that has been the case since the the Narcotics Act. But you, and just to push back just a little bit, oh, um, as you had noted, you know, heroin came about. It was um, it was marketed. It was uh, controlled by Bayer, and so and it was marketed as a as a drug that would help you get over your morphine addiction. And and it was pushed. Um, but once it became identified as something that was being used by black and brown people, the narrative changed. So, oh, yes. I, so I, I don't disagree, but I, but I do think that 
um, it's not just simply uh, there was a medical use for it, and that distinguishes how opioids is being viewed versus cocaine because completely, completely. we see the heroin as um, something that was medically indicated. Yes. Yeah. And, and despite uh, everything that, that, that we've said here, there is still uh, significant distinctions in the law as to how these uh, the drug use and distribution uh, is uh, handled. Uh, in our uh, uh, court system and how our policymakers are dealing uh, with the, uh, the issues. Now, uh, Attorney Harris, you, you, you mentioned the uh, STOP legislation. Yes. Can, can you talk about that and what the goal and design of that legislation is? Sure, uh, the STOP Act. So basically we, we realize that the Attorney General's office just doing research, talking to, you know, these experts, we realized there was a flood of these, this opioid prescription medication in people's medicine cabinets, right? The doctors were prescribing too much. There was too much out there in North Carolina. And we realized that that contributed to the diversion, right? People becoming addicted to the opioid, then diverting it, getting it street drug, people dying. Um, so we did the STOP Act, and it has a five-day limit on an opioid uh, prescription for acute pain. After surgery, it's a seven-day limit. This is based on CDC standards, so to speak. And what they said was, and please correct me, was I believe more than a five-day prescription of opioids, you have a a greater chance of becoming addicted to it. So we put a five-day limit on that. This covers every doctor, North Carolina, um, nurse practitioner, whoever can prescribe this medication. Uh, Controlled substance reporting system, that's an electronic system. This is where the doctor could, would put in your prescription to try to prevent doctor shopping. So when you want to another doctor, they'll look it up and they'll see, oh, you've already got this prescription. I don't need to prescribe you this opioid anymore. Also, it, it eliminates the, these, you know, these paper tablets, prescription tablets, because people were forging those just to get this medication. So, again, the main purpose, one of the main purposes of this act was to limit the amount of opioid prescription pills that were here in North Carolina. Yeah, but you had a lot of uh, pushback from uh, the medical uh, community, and right. that pushback is continuing. Can you kind of discuss exactly what's happening with, with that? Yeah, uh, we get a lot of calls. A lot of the confusion is from, from at least a lot of the, the people that I hear, they're suffering from chronic pain. You know, they're like, why are you guys, you know, messing with us with this STOP Act? My doctor won't prescribe my opioid medication anymore. And I remind them the STOP Act does not, you know, affect anyone suffering from chronic pain. It, it states it right in there. It's, it's not for that. It's for people with acute pain. So if you're suffering chronic pain, you already prescribed opioids, um, it doesn't affect you right there. Uh, that, that's a key part. Go ahead. Okay. All right. We're going to have to take a quick break, but you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we have been talking about the opioid epidemic here in North Carolina and actually nationally, internationally, actually. Uh, we have with us in the studio Attorney Hugh Harris. He is a an attorney with the North Carolina Department of Justice. And Dr. Jennifer Carroll, she is a professor of anthropology anthropology at Elon University. We're going to take a quick break, but we hope you'll stay with us. We'll be right back. The Center for Child and Family Health was founded in 1996 
as a consortium of North Carolina Central University, Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and the Durham community. Since that time, CCFH has become a national leader in research, training, and the treatment of childhood trauma. The mission of CCFH is to care for children and families affected by abuse, neglect, and other forms of trauma. Its professionals utilize a multidisciplinary measurable approach to provide prevention services, treatment for children and families, professional training, and research related to childhood traumatic stress by uniquely integrating community-based practice and academic excellence. Its vision is that every child has the right to be loved, nurtured, and safe. As a center of excellence, CCFH strives to define the highest standards in the prevention and treatment of childhood trauma. In this way, stability and hope can be restored for children and their families. Information about the Center for Child and Family Health is at 919-419-3474 or the Center's website at www.ccfhnc.org. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with attorney Hugh Harris, who is the Outreach and Policy Counsel for the Public Protection Division of the North Carolina Department of Justice, and Dr. Jennifer Carroll, who is an assistant professor at Elon University in the Anthropology Department. And right before the break, attorney Harris was talking about the STOP Act and how this is an act that's designed to focus on the prevention of opiate addiction. Dr. Carroll, what thoughts do you have on the STOP Act and the efficacy of the prevention aspect of the law? Yeah. So um, uh, it was mentioned that the STOP Act was organized around some of the advice that was given in the CDC guidelines for um, safe opioid prescribing, which was published in 2016. Um, and, and for all those who are curious, um, it's actually a very approachable, well-written document. I encourage folks to read it. And I especially encourage folks to read it uh, because the first few pages goes to goes at great lengths and it goes to great effort to explain that the evidence that's in those guidelines that has been reviewed and the guidelines themselves are based on on very, very limited science. So the first several pages essentially say, there's an awful lot we don't know, but this is our best guess. And then every single recommendation that's made throughout the guideline is hedged with, but also you have to do what's best for your individual patient, right? And so there is the two women who were the primary authors of the guideline, um, Deborah Dowell and Tamara Hagerich at the CDC and the Um, National Center for Injury Prevention and Control. Um, They recently put out a commentary in the New England Journal of Medicine just last month that was published on April 24th. Um, It's called No Shortcuts to Safer Opioid Prescribing, and they come out against what they call the misapplication of these guidelines, um, especially in terms of putting the guidelines into law specifically. And what they were targeting was not necessarily laws like the STOP Act specifically, which say, you know, this is a short-term opioid prescription for acute opioid pain. You've sprained your ankle. You're coming out of surgery, something like that. But um, they say specifically that the guidelines they gave were for new opioid 
prescriptions. You know, if you have someone in your office who is opioid naive and you're going to start them on this therapy today, here's the best knowledge that we have about how to do that safely and work with them. It doesn't say anything about chronic pain management. Nevertheless, some of the um, you know, other states have been putting into law limitations on the daily dose of the type of opioids people can receive and things like that. And those are simply not evidence based. And, you know, as was said, even though the laws are not targeting chronic pain patients, and I can't speak about this in North Carolina specifically, I, I haven't seen data, I just don't know. But elsewhere in the United States, I do know that some of these laws are having a chilling effect on, on physicians and are very, very much um, uh growing anxiety in, in care providers, even care providers who have had long-term patients on chronic opioid therapy for chronic pain for a long time. Um, uh, in a, a conversation I had with one of the AUSAs in North Georgia about a year ago, she mentioned that there is a profound understanding some, between a lot of, uh, among a lot of medical professionals between legal practice and illegal practice, and that there's this huge buffer of what she called malpractice in between. Um, and there are a lot of imaginations about what it means to be giving out substances that are under DEA control and, and things like that. So I, so I think we have a lot of myths in our brain. Um, and we're, some of these laws are not setting physicians up for success and aren't setting their patients up for success. Um, so we need to do a lot more research to really understand how, how these new dialogues around limiting opioid prescribings are affecting people. And mm -hmm. that kind of raises the question of how we got here, because based on what you're saying, it sounds like there may have been an, uh, you know, somewhat of an overcorrecting of, of, mm -hmm. of the problem, if you will. And I know that's a, you know, not, not a, a clear way of saying it. But um, if we think about how, how we got into this place, and you talked a little bit about the monetizing of mm -hmm. opiates, mm -hmm. um, can you can you talk about can you talk a little bit about how we even got here in terms mm -hmm. of the role that the manufacturers played in terms mm -hmm. of encouraging the doctors to prescribe mm -hmm. the medications, yeah. and I mean because that I don't know if you can really. Um, accurately understand the goal of the STOP Act without understanding how it is that we got here and the role yeah. that doctors play, because there's a lot of blame to go around. There, there certainly is, yeah. Um, so there are a lot of factors that are involved. I think it's important to note that opioid use, any kind of opioid, has been growing very steadily in the United States for a long time, since before OxyContin, since before fentanyl, since, you know, just it's been steady. Um, so that is a larger social and cultural phenomenon that, that merits examination on its own right. Um, I think it's also important to note that there are places, I, I don't disagree with your use of the term overcorrection. Um, I am an, uh, an ardent harm reductionist, and I believe that all of our uh, choices and changes should be made towards um, positive change, even if that positive change is incremental. And so that means, you know, essentially not throwing out the baby with the bathwater when we're trying to make change. So if you look, for example, at um, the rate of heroin overdose in the United States, it spiked around Q3 2010. And that's when the FDA um, very quickly pushed through a new abuse deterrent formulation of OxyContin. And um, to clarify, abuse deterrent doesn't mean non-addictive. It means harder to crush and dissolve and turn into an injectable solution. So suddenly this, this um, drug that People were misusing it, yes, but it was a drug that was pharmaceutical 
perfectly safe, met FDA regulations, came with an ingredients list, came with a dosage. People knew what they were taking. That was suddenly off the streets. People replaced it with heroin um, because we did not have the treatment capacity to support those individuals um, with opioid use disorder with medications. And and heroin just has a lot more degrees of freedom in it, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it is true. There are individuals who, and I know some individuals who have experienced, you know, uh, a slightly too generous prescription from the dentist, for example, and then and then fall rapidly into an out-of-control escalating substance use disorder. That does happen. We also know that that's typically not common. Um, so there is a, a really wonderful review of all the literature um, put out in, also in New England Journal of Medicine by uh, the first author, uh, Wilson Compton. And they, uh, there are a number of other CDC authors on it as well. Um, and they conclude actually that even though it does happen, multiple studies have found very, very little association between um, uh, people starting opioids non-medically uh, diverted prescription opioids and moving on to heroin. It does happen, and using prescription opioids is a risk factor for heroin use, but that's that's less often the case. Um, I, I will bracket it by saying that this is an area where reasonable people can disagree because we do not have like clear, concrete, 100% sure causal evidence here. Um, and I would finish up by very briefly referring back to Helena Hansen again. Um, she again has made a very compelling case that part of the reason why we might be seeing more heroin use, um, especially in um, in rural areas where heroin did not have a footprint, you know, several decades ago, is because of increased opioid marketing. Um, and so that brought opioids into a place where heroin didn't have a market before. And so when the opioids are pulled out, there is a new uh, market for opioids that heroin can come in and fill. So there's lots and lots of different factors. Um, I think it's really hard to place the blame on any particular one. Mm. Well, let me, you know, just see if I can uh, bring it kind of down to our level of people in our audience. Uh, And uh, because we talk about acute pain, Mm -hmm. that's not pretty pain, that's uh, short, Uh (laughs) short term pain as opposed to chronic uh, pain. And uh, a lot of people in our audience, uh, for instance, um, uh, have uh, suffered from severe arthritis, you know, which is a very debilitating uh, 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 problem. Uh, And uh, the use of pain medication is widely uh, available uh, for that. How do we address those kind of issues if it brings relief, yet it has some addictive qualities uh, to it? And uh, how do we then uh, interfere with the doctor-patient relationship uh, to uh, impact those those of us who have something like and arthritis is just one thing that I uh, that, that that comes to mind. So you, you're the law enforcement. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, I, I think it's it's good you used the key word in there is we. You know, having doctors at the table, having everyone, health providers at the table, and talking about alternative forms of treatment. How about that? Um, getting the insurance companies because that's a big hurdle, right? So is it my insurance company going to approve this acupuncture treatment, just for example, that may relieve pain as opposed to me, they'll approve the opioid. So it's getting them at the table also, uh, getting more people involved, uh, people like Dr. Carroll and everyone involved to say, hey, what, let's let's use some of these alternative forms. I know you're on chronic, you know, you're receiving this, you, you're suffering from chronic pain, you're receiving this opioid medication, 
But there are some alternatives. That's where their doctor can possibly even offer that to them. But if they, their insurance isn't going to cover it, that's that's going to be a big issue for them. Yeah. So I think that's that's a big start. And I think that's where, again, not that I'm you know, bragging, but this Stop Act kind of boarded in there. It's, it's brought that conversation. It's saying, hey, let's limit the amount of prescription drugs out there, right, that are being prescribed. It also provided $20 million for substance abuse treatment, $10 million per year, which was a good thing. So we're trying to do something, mm-hmm. and we are. We're all, Still. We're mm-hmm. um, I think we, we need a lot more data. Um, I'm going to maybe take the scientist cop out of there and say we, we don't really know. Um, but I would say this. Um, in the public health world, we uh, teach evidence-based practice to our students um, with the uh, terrible but useful metaphor of a three-legged stool, right? And and it requires three different pieces of information. And one is scientific research, right? So we need um, much more focus on um, what actually does work for chronic pain patients. And, and those aren't always uh, super high priority studies to fund, but they, they should be. The second is expert opinion and knowledge. So folks who have the lived experience of being like, no, tried to implement that in Boston, didn't work, you know, and we were able to bring that sort of thing to bear. And then three is the the input and perspectives and values of the people who are affected, right? You would never try to, uh, to bring up an earlier conversation from the break, you would never try to have a measles vaccination campaign and not talk to parents who are concerned about the measles vaccine. Um, similarly, it is um, a fool's errand to try to create overdose prevention policies when you're not directly talking to people at risk of overdose or try to understand how to best care for chronic pain patients without involving chronic pain patients in in the conversation. Um, and that seems like, I think, a very, very straightforward sort of observation about how, how knowledge and community organization works, but it's something that we tend to be very good at forgetting in practice. And so what tangible recommendations can we give people? Because yes, we need the research, but, and that's mm-hmm. gonna take time, um, but but people need some assistance now. So what, what tangible recommendations can we give to our listeners who may um, themselves be confronting this issue, who have family members and friends who are confronting this issue? Uh, particularly, you know, when we know that insurance plays a big role, there are many people who don't have insurance. And when we think about Medicaid expansion and we think about um, rolling back the Affordable Care Act and what that mm-hmm. will do in terms of those states that have accepted the Medicaid expansion. I mean, so these these are very real issues, and people need solutions today. So mm-hmm. what what can we suggest? Yeah, you put up another key thing too. Also, um, people don't have health insurance; they can't afford recovery or treatment centers. Right? Mm-hmm. I can't send my kid off. You know, I don't have that sort of money. So that that's a key factor in it. I'd first tell people, educate yourself about this, about this epidemic, the opioid. Educate yourself. We have a website. Uh, our office did with the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. It's called more, www.morepowerfulnc.org. It has a plethora of resources. Uh, explains the epidemic, what's going on here in North Carolina, what we're doing. Lots of resources. Um, don't be afraid to talk to the youth, too, as far as education. I, I just don't mean adults. Or if you're someone that's using or you have a kid that's, that, that may be using, unfortunately. But educate anyone. You know, you can. Your whole community, we all are invested in this thing, and we need to do something about it. So that, that would be the first thing. And once you educate yourself, you'll realize, you know, not to get into politics, but you need to look at that Medicaid expansion thing. Who, who's going to represent me? Mm-hmm. You know, who, who's representing my family? My, 
you know, uh, and if that person isn't, you, you need to rethink some things. Now, Dr. Carroll, you, you recently uh, uh, authored a, a, a book uh, resulting from a research study uh, that uh, you uh, conducted, and I believe that that's coming out in the next uh, few days. Can you just kind of give our audience a little information about uh, that book and uh, the research that you uh, were engaged in. Yes. So the book is called Narcomania, Drugs, HIV, and Citizenship in Ukraine. It's being released from uh, Cornell University Press in, in a matter of days, as you mentioned. And it's based on a lot of research that I did in Ukraine, actually, before I was doing a lot of um, some of the research that I described earlier in the United States. Um, I had two different hats. I was a harm reductionist here, you know, doing naloxone trainings, passing out um, syringes and smoking equipment and, and just loving on people, you know, the way the church raised me to do. Um, and uh, and then abroad, I was the researcher. And so I spent a lot of time in methadone clinics in Ukraine, uh, internationally funded places, because they have a, um, a very severe HIV and tuberculosis epidemic among people who use drugs. And then while I was there in 2013 and 2014, the Euromaidan or the Maidan revolution happened, the government collapsed, there were massive, um, violent clashes with the government and protests. And, and, and then Russia annexed Crimea, and then war broke out in the East. All these crazy things happened. And what was astonishing to me is how much people who use drugs, but not even people who use drugs, the imagination that we have, the image in our minds of who people who use drugs are and what they are and what's wrong with them, and all those myths were so deeply tied to the politics of all these geopolitical crises. Um, you know, people were accusing each other of being drug users, and why is Crimea being annexed? Oh, because of the drug users down there, and why is the war happening in the East? Oh, because they're all weak drug users and they gave themselves up really quickly. Um, I think one of the most devastating things to come out of it is um, after the annexation of Crimea, a number of people who appear in this book lost their lives when um, the Russian Federation shut down the methadone clinics that were keeping people alive in that area. So currently, methadone and buprenorphine, the two most evidence-based um, medications that we have for opioid use disorder, which are life-saving, period they are illegal in in Russia. You can't even import them. So when Russia took over Crimea, illegally annexed it, and said, we're going to make it a Russian place, they shut down the methadone clinics with almost no notice, and people overdosed immediately after, which was terribly predictable. Mm -hmm. um, it, was, it was tragic, but I think that we actually have a lot of lessons to gain um, in our own opioid crisis from what other people are, how they're responding to theirs. And I think that raises a, a question we'll have to delve into on, a, on another show, which is when we talk about treatment, mm -hmm. uh, certainly we need mental health treatment, mm -hmm. but then there are those that suggest that you can use drugs to help treat a drug addiction. And yeah. so when you know, we say treatment, we mean medications. Medications mm -hmm. are treatment. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to save that discussion for another day because we are unfortunately out of time. But we'd like to thank our guests so much for this incredibly important discussion. Uh, we have Attorney Hugh Harris. He is the Outreach and Policy Counsel for the Public Protection Division of the North Carolina Department of Justice. And Dr. Jennifer Carroll, she is a professor of anthropology at Elon University. And uh, we'd like to thank you, of course, our listening audience, for taking time out of your Sunday evening and sharing your time with us. We hope you've learned something, and, and we hope you will take the advice of both our wonderful guests and uh, get informed. We know that this is causing great havoc on, on all of our communities, and we are, are being harmed so much in terms of 
uh, lives that are being lost, human capital that's being lost, our communities are being uh, destroyed in some cases. And then we think about the financial losses as well that we're suffering as a, as a city, a community, a state, and a country. So um, definitely we hope that this encourages you to, to learn more about this subject. If you have any questions about it, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next week, stay informed and engaged. <laughs>